I, I try to remember to keep a practice of gratitude. Uh, most of the gratitude is for extremely simple things. So like in the morning, typically, I, I get the sense of, I am so grateful that I have a hot shower that's inside my house. Seekers, welcome to episode 17 of Mysterious World. This is Stuart Palm. Today I'm bringing you a conversation with Dean Radin, the senior scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, former president of the Parapsychological Association, and author of Real Magic. So glad to be back here at the microphone at Third Sight Studio, my little home away from home, my den of manifestation and real magic in its own right. Today I will be talking to Dean Radin and uh, I hope that someday I'll be able to talk to him again because it was a great conversation. He has a great way of speaking um, and so much knowledge on uh, so many things that I am deeply interested in um, and, and I'm sure you will be too. Um, so we'll be promoting and talking and, uh, discussing real magic. And I'll also be promoting now my own book. That's right. Stuart Palm wrote a book. And actually, if you're part of the mental, the uh, mentalism and mystery entertainment world, you know that I've, I've written a number of books, but this is the first one I've written as Stuart Palm. The first one out for the, the hoi polloi, the general public. Those of you who would like to harness your own psychic abilities and become more intuitive and expand your minds, that's who I'm talking to. Access Your Psychic Self is a series. It'll be a series of books. This is the first in the series. Uh, Beginner Pendulum Magic is all about how to use and uh, develop your ability to douse with a pendulum. And that, what that means is you take a, a weight on a string or a pendulum on a chain or anything kind of uh, heavy thing on a, on some sort of string or chain, and uh, you let your unconscious respond to simple yes and no questions, or give you responses that guide you and allow you to help yourself to transform. The book will explain what that means and how to do that. Uh, it's rather accessible. I've written it so that it it's a very clean and clear description of how to develop and uh, uh, become better at trusting yourself really is part of part of the intuitive and psychic process. Um, so you can get that on my website. You can go to stuartpalm.com and click the shop button. There's also an advertisement for an, on the, uh, for the book on the first page. Uh, you can go to mysteriousworldpodcast.com and click on the shop button. It's the same shop button because it's all connected in my website. Um, you can go on Lulu, the Lulu self-publishing uh, site, and search for Stuart Palm or search for uh, uh, Pen Pendulum Magic, Beginner Pendulum Magic, and you'll find it that way as well. Uh, Lulu, on Lulu, you can get a physical copy that will be sent to your home. On uh, my website, you can also buy a PDF ebook version 
uh, if you are so inclined to read that way. But I do recommend getting the physical book because uh, it's, well, there's nice illustrations in it, uh, also uh, many of which I drew. And on the back cover, actually the illustrations are in the ebook version too, but it's nice to have a physical copy. Uh, the back cover is a pendulum chart and, and it shows you how to uh, use that in the book. Um, I actually didn't include this in the book, but I realized after creating it that you can, the pendulum chart is, is um, a circle with many numbers on it and you could label those numbers with different things and uh, use it that way by using a dry erase marker or a China marker. Uh, you could write in, you know, different places you might want to go on holiday or different jobs you'd like to like, like to pursue or uh, different possibilities for dinner and allow your pendulum to guide you to, you know, those kinds of choices. Um, so lots you can do with pendulum magic. It's one of my favorite things. Um, I actually have pendulums for sale here at, at uh, third sight studio as well. Um, what else? Uh, real magic. I, I had heard of Dean Radin for a long time and I've, I've read little parts of other books of his. Um, but recently I became aware of, uh, of this most recent book, Vespa's going by, uh, his most recent book, real magic. And it was a real quick read. Um, I also recommend the audiobook version. It's very, um, one of those things is hard to put down. Uh, the audiobook is is re read by the same guy who who reads the audiobooks for Dan Brown, and um, I've read, I've listened to some of those as well. But it gives you the whole sort of story of magic and what it is in our real world, uh, real world, not not sort of Harry Potter magic, but but real magic, uh, how it works, um, the history of it. Um, the scientific evidence that it exists, what psi is, because basically we're calling psi uh, in this in this book, Real Magic. The conversation that I have <clears throat> in just a moment with Dean, uh, he, he will explain all of that stuff. Um, before we get there, I'd like to take a moment of silence. It's a new thing that I'm going to do. Uh, I'd like to take a moment of silent prayer. I know that sounds uh, strange for some people, I'm sure. But uh, this is because in the last, uh, since, since the last episode, um, my uncle passed away and he, he was a very, uh, a big influence on me. And I'm, I was already, I'm already a person who connects to spirit regularly, but since then I, I have been undertaking it uh, in a different way, in a more focused direction. And, uh, so I just like to take a moment I will be now, uh, beginning the, uh, I'll be beginning the podcast saying, Hey, fun seekers, because that's what he used to say when he would arrive at a house or arrive at a party or whatever. Hey, fun seekers. That was his, his, uh, tagline, I guess. One of many, he had a lot of phrases. He was a storyteller and, and that sort of instinct and, ability uh, is what sort of part of what inspired me to become who I am and, and continues to inspire. I'm going to put on some soothing music here for a moment and we are just going to take a few moments of reflection, meditation, prayer, whatever you want to call it. 
Um, but I'd like you to take these few moments to honor the memory of someone who was important to you who's passed on. All right. Blessings to you all. If you'd like to take more time, just pause this recording and uh, come back to us. Once you get your copy of Real Magic and, and read it, there's a, was a nice um, chapter on prayer and its positive effects. Um, so you can look forward to that. I think doing this is going to be important in listening to this podcast as well, because you've just transformed your focus. You've transformed the way you're thinking. You've transformed your connection with consciousness and spirit. And, uh, that, that we just had that what we've just done is in itself a magical moment, magical practice. Um, I'm going to lose some of you probably the more I go this direction, I'm going to lose the more, uh, pragmatic and scientifically focused. Uh, and that's, that's why it's a good thing. I think that I have a scientist on today who has, he breaches, breaches, no, he bridges the worlds of what we would call new age and the pragmatic scientific, uh, world. And, and so he, he connects disparate things that aren't so disparate if you think about it. And in many ways, what he uh, shows in real magic is that science is going towards magic where at one point it went away. And uh, I find that fascinating. Um, he points out something that I've been noticing for years, uh, which is that a lot of science a lot of scientists don't use the scientific method when it comes to things that they call supernatural or that they call magic or that they, they presuppose that it's not real. And so they discount it, which is not scientific. Um, I, I am not, I'm not a scientist. I, I, I know the basics of the scientific method, but 
um, you want to listen to him talk about it. You want to hear it from somebody who knows what they're talking about. And uh, that's the lovely thing about his work. And I'm, I'm looking forward to reading more of his books now. Um, what else do I have to tell you about? It is December 11th. Uh, so winter solstice is coming soon. Many of you will be celebrating in different traditions in different ways. Um, so I, I wish you a happy, joyous, and um, giving solstice season. I wish you love and uh, I wish you a stronger connection to spirit. The end of um, the end of real magic is fantastic. The very last line, and it's not really a spoiler to say it, is that he says, "Magic is real. Deal with it." And I think that's beautiful. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Dean Raiden, and somebody's at my door. that make sense what I'm saying? Are you saying that uh, is the is our collective anxiety reflected by anxious weather? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I would say I can't discount it uh, because we do see that there that certainly intention and attention do push around the fabric of reality a little bit. Sure. Sometimes more than a little bit. Uh and so it's conceivable that some of what we're seeing is associated with a kind of collective anxiety. On the other hand, our consciousness, even the collective consciousness of all 7 billion plus people on Earth, in the grand scheme of things, is such a small drop in the bucket as far as something like the sun goes, right. or even as the, the Earth goes, that I, I think it's much more likely that there are other reasons why the climate is changing and there's political unrest and all all the other agitations in the world. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's a factor, but it's not the only factor. I, I have a good friend uh, who is one of the most avid and committed law of attraction people I've ever met every day. She's journaling and, and focusing and, uh, on this stuff. And her mindset is always that things that we're doing and things that are happening are leading towards a better, uh, more positive outcome because that's what we want. Mm -hmm. So, so I always turn to her when I'm feeling anxious and, and, uh, in dismay about anything because she's a, a, a breath of fresh air. Um, in your studies on, on these kinds of things on new thought and, and all the different, uh, permutations of this kind of idea that consciousness creates reality. Um, on, on one side, I, I feel that the, the goal universally when you look through religions is just to create a balance. But do you feel like that things that the intention uh, on all, all counts is to make things better. 
Does that make sense? I would hope so. Well, yeah, good. And and of course, better is uh, not always so easy to define. That's true. It's one of yeah. the reasons why in the study of morals and ethics that it's, you can very quickly end up in a space where you don't know anymore. So sure. To give you an example is something like a, a binding spell. Yeah. Right? So a binding spell, from one perspective, is is absolutely black magic. It's sure. a no-no. From another perspective, it's the best thing you can possibly do. Yeah. So, so what is it? Well, it's going to depend on, on, I guess, whether the, you're the effect of it or whether you're the cause of it or something like that. So there's some cases where it's, it's relatively easy to define something as white or black magic, if we want to put it in those terms. Sure. Uh, but there are many, many cases where it's, it starts to get very messy very quickly. So I, I'm, I guess uh, I, I agree and understand people who say, you know, there are absolutes of good and evil. And in some cases there are. But I think in most cases it is not quite so easy to tell. Yeah. I, that makes perfect sense. I just I just finished your book uh, I, the two days ago, and uh, mm -hmm. I'm still buzzing with the, it was exciting. It was an exciting read, and it was an exciting uh, book because I feel like what you've done is um, you've crossed the bridge between the people who are going to come at this from a scientific perspective or even a skeptic perspective and people who will come at this from the perspective of magicians and of people who would say, well, sure, there's real magic. I see mm -hmm. it all the time um, that it's accessible to both sides. And I don't think I've completely seen that before as effectively as, as what real magic is. So I've been telling everybody to go read it. Uh, and I love, I just posted actually on Facebook, the very last line of magic is real deal with it which is fantastic yeah. fantastic response um so well thank thank you for yeah. that, that compliment yeah yeah um so to to get into it how did you you your background as far as i understand is is science when did it start for you to become an interest to look into psi probably when i was a preteen and okay. I was reading a lot of science fiction. Nice. And when I read all of the science fiction in the local library, I started on fairy tales. And then I exhausted them and went on to parables and mythology and uh, tales of the uh, secret Eastern masters and all that sort of stuff. Sure. So I, I kind of suspect that like a lot of kids who might read the Harry Potter series that you, of course, know that most of it is fantasy, but there's a little piece of you thinking, I wonder if some of that actually is real because it, it feels more than just fantasy. So as a kid, you don't know about psychology very much or wishful thinking and coping mechanisms and all that. Uh, but as I as I got older and was learning more about about psychology and what it's like to be a person, uh, that wonder never dropped. Right. And you, you still see a lot of adults who have read Harry Potter who secretly are wearing Harry Potter underwear. You know, it's, <laughs> it's either Spider-Man or, or Harry Potter, but it's there. Right. And it, it's because it, it's simply uh, wrapped into us that uh, the sense of wonder. And I think it's a pity when some adults get to the point where they don't have any wonder 
anymore. Yeah. Even among scientists, you see this a lot, that scientists begin to get a sense that they actually understand everything works and immediately want to explain everything. And I, I think that's, first of all, it's, it's hubris because we don't really understand very much at all. Yeah. And second, if you, if you remove the sense of awe and wonder and humility about the, the state of being aware in, in the universe, uh, then I think you're, you're dropping something very important. So that, that's been built into my DNA at some point. And it was the sense of wonder that pushed my curiosity, which turned into science, essentially. That's what a lot of scientists are driven by curiosity. Uh, and that's why I started studying sci research. As, as soon as I learned that there was a branch of science where you could study these phenomena, yeah. that's that that was the hook for me. What? Um, that's great. Um, when you came came at it, it was wasn't called sci sci yet. It was was it parapsychological research in, in the beginning? I'm not or, that old. <laughs> well, I know, you know but sci is is relatively in in the modern vernacular is is relatively new that perspective. Yeah, well, but within within the field, it's been around for a long time. Okay, uh, much much longer than I've been alive. Oh, okay, good. Uh, it's it's true in the modern vernacular, people might think of it in in other terms. You, you see sometimes the word psi all capitalized, like psi, right? And some people will call it psi. Sure. And I have to remind them that that means pounds per square inch. <laughs> right. Uh, even some of our colleagues will will spell it as capital P S I, and it's it's like a pet peeve of mine. And it's not that. It's, right. It's a letter of the Greek alphabet. That's all it is. Sure. So. Yeah. Well, so I, I've I've been using uh, that term, and sometimes depending on the audience, I'll talk about psychic phenomena. Uh, in some audiences, they won't even get that. And I might have to talk about paranormal things, which I prefer not to, because I think that these phenomena are completely normal. Sure. They're not paranormal. So depends well, I, on the audience. I ask because every time that I use the term and I and I do some public speaking and I do a mentalism show, but I, I commonly address groups of people and and I use the term, I find myself then following up by explaining what the term means. And I'm like, hasn't this been around long enough that I don't have to do that anymore? Right. No, I do. I still have to explain what psi is and and uh, and go into it. Well, it, it is jargon after all. Sure. Right. So psychic, psychic is a, especially psychic phenomena is a phrase that most people know, but they may not know the, the jargon. So, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um where do you find wonder for yourself? Like on a personal level, what fills you with wonder? Uh, where do you go to get that feeling sort of regenerated? Does that make sense to the question? Um, what I mean is like, is it uh, for you, do you get that more through fantasy novels still? Or just kind of on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, watching a sunset? It's more like that. I, I try to remember to keep a practice of gratitude. Uh, most of the gratitude is for extremely simple things. So like in the morning, typically I, I get the sense of, I am so grateful that I have a hot shower that's inside my house. Beautiful, yeah. 
right? So that's it's not exactly wonder, but it's kind of along that direction where it's a, a recognition of, holy smoke, we're not living in caves and eating grubs for dinner. Right. We actually, for, for people who are fortunate anyway, that's where the gratitude comes from. I feel very fortunate to have a job that pays me to do what I want and to have enough food and have shelter and all the rest of it. It's sure. astonishing. Nice, natural, humbled wonder. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, I mean, the, because if you pay any attention at all to the news and you, you realize that you, you might be in a pocket where it's actually reasonably safe and uh, the, the world's not trying to kill you all the time, that's already a miracle. So yeah. I'm always grateful for that. I think it was in, in the book uh, that you talked about how while we are more aware right now of um, all the, the atrocities of the world because we get them sho- shoved in our face all the time, but actually things are much much more peaceful mm-hmm. than they've ever been. Right, in the collective, yep. Yeah. Um, it's good, it's good. Um, sorry, I had a question and then uh, I got sidetracked because I think uh, gratitude is a better way to focus. Um in terms of everything that I've studied in, in any um, theological sense, gratitude is really the answer for, mm-hmm. for how to get oneself centered. Right. Um, do you have a personal experience with the ritualistic magic side of things? You know, uh, until I started writing Real Magic, I, I didn't think of what the, the practices that I've done as magic. Because I, um, over many years, I've read a, a number of books and affirmations. Sure. Uh, most of them seem to be so loaded with platitudes and with unrealistic expectations that I, I would read it in the same way I might read a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. So I could see, yes, there's a certain degree of uh, of truth within these books, uh, uh, but it's it's almost never as strong. Like the what what is promised in a book on affirmations, especially ones who promise that you'll have all the money and uh, cars and sex and everything else that you want right. uh, in a minute. Well, that's that's wish fulfillment. That's not going to be very realistic. And even beyond that, even though the techniques work, whether it's writing magic or sigils or whatever it happens to be or some kind of ritual, it's not necessarily easy. It requires a certain degree of talent, some discipline practice, in fact, a lot of discipline practice. uh, And not everyone, even who who practice every single day, are going to be able to do it because they don't have the capacity to do it. True. Uh, No, go ahead. So as far as practice goes, then, for because I've been involved in parapsychological work for so many years, it occurred to me as I was writing this book on, on Real Magic that what I do when I'm developing an experiment, or for that matter, even doing analysis, it is kind of a magical practice. You get into an unusual state of mind, you have very tight focus on what you're doing. The clearer you get in terms of, especially when you're writing up a study or you're designing a study, the clearer you are in what your hypothesis is, the more likely it is going to be shown. Sure. So, this is one of the reasons, I think, why the experiments I do tend to work far more often than you'd expect simply by chance. They, they work. Mm-hmm. 
from a scientific perspective, that's actually not so good. Because if you can devise a hypothesis to test something and you keep getting evidence that that is correct, it means you're pushing, it could mean that you're pushing the world around so that it gives you what you want. Mm-hmm. And that's that may be different than what the the, the baseline truth may be. Uh, or the baseline truth is flexible and you can make the world anything that you want. So, you know, the sci- this is bad for science because science assumes that there is a baseline truth. And if that truth is actually flexible, then most of the epistemologies and methods that science uses to study the world, they all suddenly are drawn into question. So it puts me in a paradoxical condition where I'm trying to be a scientist, and at the same time, <laughs> I'm watching the world become flexible at right. my will. Oh no, science is wrong. <laughs> yeah, not, not exactly wrong, but it it is capable enough to begin to reveal its own inconsistencies. Sure. And so that that actually shows that as a method, it's really good. You can begin to see that the method itself can be drawn into question. And so through that, one of the things I, I hope to to learn and use is if indeed the the world is responding to to my wishes, how do I develop an epistemology or or even a just a simple method? How do I develop a method that will allow me to learn how? It is responding because that's that's like the major question in science. Once you get to the point where you say, okay, the world seems to be flexible, the very next question that comes up, well, then how? How is it flexible? Mm-hmm. What is it that makes it flexible? Or what is it that it is so responsive to my wishes? Well, where is your research taking you now? Well, at the moment, I have uh, five experiments all looking at mind-matter interaction uh-huh. using uh, physical target systems that haven't been used before. So when you look at the, the history of psychokinetic research, the vast majority of it falls into two classes of targets. So we have a huge database where people are tossing dice and a huge database where people use random number generators. Sure. And then, then there's a whole bunch of other things. People occasionally use uh, bacteria in a dish, or they use human physiology at a distance, that sort of thing. But by comparison to the first two categories, it, it, it basically falls down into those two categories, tossing of random systems, basically. So it occurred to me one day that uh, we, we make certain conclusions about what we think is going on based on those databases. And the conclusions are things like, yeah, that we can push the world around a little bit, at least in terms of how random systems respond. But that's certainly not all that's going on, especially when it comes to something like a random number generator. Because if you use a commercial random number generator, they're designed to be impervious to external influences. I mean, the the guts of the generator is essentially a noise produced by a a semiconductor. But the noise is conditioned by a logical gate called an XOR, an exclusive OR gate. And when you pass the noise through this this logical gate, even if the circuits within the, the, the electronics itself, if they begin to fail, it fails towards chance. And what that means is it's very difficult, except under uh, huge extremes of temperature or 
magnetic or electromagnetic fields, a, a modern hardware-based electronic random number generator is really robust. Mm. It's very difficult to force it to not behave randomly. And so you do a psychokinetic experiment and the thing starts obeying your will. It's very difficult to know how did that happen? What happened to it? Because the, the first thing you start thinking of, well, we're somehow moving the electrons in a different way. There's like a force beam that shoots out of your head into the device and it does something. But as far as we can tell, that is not happening. It's not that. It, it's not a force beam. Well, if you're influencing it and it's not force, the only other thing that we were able to come up with at this point is you're changing the informational description of the device itself. So now we're at a very abstract level, which is a lot more like magic. Yeah. As you're talking about, you're changing the symbolic description of the thing. Well, maybe that's true, maybe it isn't, but that's about as close as we can get. There are others who say, well, actually nothing is influenced. It is operating exactly the way it's supposed to operate, except that the time that you decide you want to intervene with it to do an experiment, it is just naturally going to drift in one direction or the other, and you're taking advantage of a natural fluctuation. So there's no causal influence at all. In other words, you use your clairvoyance or precognition to decide when to do the experiment. Wow. And so this is no longer a psychokinetic effect. Right. This is now a perceptual psi effect. And so this is an ongoing debate in the field. Is it really influenced or are you taking advantage of natural fluctuations that you're picking up psychically? Well, because then so you'd, have to, you'd have to have somehow to randomly assign when you do the random test, which... <laughs> well, how, how, how much information can you get with clairvoyance? A lot. If you, yeah, a lot. So if, if you wish, in the process of designing an experiment, you can say, okay, next Tuesday at 2 o'clock, I'm going to do this experiment. Mm -hmm. Well, why did you choose Tuesday next, at 2 o'clock? Right, exactly. You know, and so you can make up something. You say, well, I'm available that time, and I can get a subject that time. And nevertheless, of, a, of an infinite number of possibilities, you could, if you're really good at clairvoyance, figure out exactly the time that this thing is going to start deviating from chance. Yeah. and do the experiment at that time. And the result would look like it is a causal influence, but in fact it isn't. Right. That's fascinating. Um, just so, for the, for the so, listeners before so from, we... Let me just yeah, finish go ahead, this thought. Go ahead, so sure. From a methodological point of view, part of one of the reasons why I'm using new types of target systems is because our understanding of what's going on is actually very limited because there's a, a gazillion different kinds of physical properties that, that physics knows. Uh, and almost none of them have actually been studied. Yeah. You know, all kinds of effects that are known in electromagnetics and magnetics and, and material science and so on. There's just thousands of things, phenomena, effects that are known. And we haven't applied these kinds of abilities to those phenomena. And until we do, I think that our ability to be able to say what's going on is actually quite limited. It's like trying to make a model of the uh, of the heavens only by looking at the moon. Right. It'll get you cer certain distance, but not very far. Yeah. The, there, there was a point in my life where I thought that people knew more than they did. 
<laughs> just in general, uh, that yeah. we had more figured out than we did because you, there's a certain level of science uh, if, if you're not trained in it that you can comprehend and then you have to take on faith that, that certain things have been figured out to a certain degree. Uh, and in my mid-20s, I had brain surgery and there were a bunch of questions I had from my neurosurgeon, um, they, all of the answers of which was, yeah, we're not really sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was like, oh, we really don't know much. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with, we don't know much, but you know, yeah. it took that experience to really literally hit me over the head with it. Um, what was I going to say about what you were saying in, in, in the, in our conversation, uh, somebody who, um, hasn't been initiated into seeing the effects of these things that we're talking about. We, we just both said clairvoyance is a thing and mm-hmm. we both believe. And for me, it goes beyond belief. Cause I just, this is a thing that happens all the time. Um, for you, uh, w- when somebody says, wait, but that's not real or wait, that exists. H- how do you support or how, what do you say to them to say, well, yeah, clairvoyance, you know, we have evidence that that's a thing and here's why. Mm-hmm. What, what do you tell them? Well, I would say, uh, how much do you know about the remote viewing literature? Nice. In the experimental literature, uh, for people, for people who declare themselves to be skeptics, which, which is fine. Skepticism is, is important. Sure. Uh, but I'm talking about skeptics with a capital S. I know. And wear buttons that have I, that. And I call them skeptic evangelists. Yeah. Uh, Typically, when I, if they say, well, what you're talking about is impossible, it's pseudoscience. I would say, well, actually, what do you know about the actual science and the data and the publications? If they know anything, they will cite something uh, like a, a book about skepticism. Sure. And the books about skepticism have one side of a story. Uh, sometimes that side is very distorted, but nevertheless, it's, it's a half of a story. Mm-hmm. If you want to be informed about something, you need to know the entire story. Well, if you read the entire story and you can understand it, uh, you come away much less certain about the idea of something being impossible. And as you may have seen in in Real Magic, uh, in in my previous books, I went through in some great gory detail about how do we do experiments, how do we evaluate it, what is meta-analysis, all of those technical things. But I decided to take a slightly different tact in Real Magic by simply uh, echoing what the president of the American Statistical Association said. So it's no longer me saying it. It's a person who is in charge of the discipline that studies and evaluates data. Nice. And very mainstream. Well, that that was Jessica Utz, and she said as part of her presidential address in 2016 that the data in favor of precognition and other psychic phenomena is as good as any other data that we have in science to establish anything. That's a paraphrase. No, it's good. And that the reason why people are, remain skeptical is because they don't actually know what the data is, including most statisticians. Because most scientists, most scholars as well, come out through 20 years of education where they're taught that either the phenomena don't exist, that's the official view, uh, or if there's some evidence for it, it isn't any good. And of course, both of those are false. But mm-hmm. if you hear it for 20 years, 
eventually you, you will figure why should I even bother to look at that stuff? It's just all nonsense. And that just sustains the taboo. You have generations upon generations of academics who are completely ignoring an aspect of the real world. Hey, fun seekers. Hope you're enjoying this interview with Dean Radin. I know I had a wonderful time speaking to him. I didn't want it to stop. Uh, I'm just jumping in to uh, talk about a few things. Uh, First of all, if any of you have a connection to the very intriguing, mysterious, and wonderful Uri Geller, uh, please connect that to me. I'd love to do an interview with him. It's one of my uh, he's on my list. I have a, a list of people I'd like to uh, talk with. Dean was one of them, and that happened. Uh, so I'm currently making a call to manifest a podcast interview with the amazing phenomenon himself. Uh, I didn't mention earlier that uh, Dean Radin was part of the Stargate program. Stargate was a... Um, psychic program, basically a clairvoyant program for the U S army. They were the remote viewers for, I think 20 plus years. Uh, Dean was not one of the remote viewers. He was a researcher, uh, who would take the data and I don't know what exactly what they had to make of it, but, uh, I've heard him mention it in other places. We don't talk about it here because we're talking about real magic and, uh, pushing forth to the future, pushing forth, um, one of the interesting things in, in real magic is the introduction. So if you find it on a bookshelf, uh, just read the introduction. It is a it is a fictional concept of the future um, where all of these things become accepted as part of reality. And it's a nice, beautiful idea in the, sort of the foreword of the book. Um, lost my train of thought. So... I'm curious to know your stories. I have had this question and query and, and start, tried to start this conversation before, but it's not a lot of interaction that happens through these podcasts. So, uh, take a moment, think about where you have had experiences of sigh in your life and, uh, come to mysteriousworldpodcast.com or go to the mysterious world podcast, Facebook page and, uh, give me your story. Um, let me know what your experience has been. I have, I think we probably have so many that, uh, I've been un, untold and I would like to give a forum for people to be able to tell those stories, a place for you to be free to do that because we will accept it. Uh, just a moment ago, I was reading Dean Radin's Wikipedia page and I will tell you this Wikipedia is not, you can't take it as true reality. They, when it comes to things um, on parapsychology, on psi, on phenomenon like this, they have a staunch skeptic bent. Um, so they, even here with a man who has lots of evidence, they present him as someone who the skeptics say uh, is biased and so on and so forth. Um, it's as, as I read his, Wikipedia page. I was saddened by it. And I talked to him in a minute about his detractors and, uh, he beautifully just says, you know, don't listen to him. Let it go. As Elsa would say, let it go. My son is a recent, uh, convert to all things frozen. 
Um, I'm going to get right back to it. Um, send me your stories. And uh, while you're at it, uh, if you have any stories about amazing things that you do with a pendulum, please add that to the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what, uh, put things into a good perspective for me as to where we are, uh, culturally and, and even internationally culturally now, uh, is the history that you go through that shows all of the ways that we have crushed magic through the years, you know, the, the Gnostics, uh, the inquisition and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really have, we have a, we have work to do to rebuild that relationship with people who can do these things so that they will come out of the closet literally. Um, and, and also not be taken as, Oh, that's a woo woo person who wears purple. And you know, that, that it's a real part of life. Um, that's kind of a mission that I have with this podcast and just with what I do as well. Um, not with any scientific training or, or anything from that side, but just that, that I have experienced and believe in these things. Um, and when I say I believe in these things, I, to, to me personally, it's, it's like, why wouldn't you? <laughs> mm-hmm. But, but uh, I have to say, I believe in these things because there's people, there's so many people who are like, well, I don't believe in that. And uh, I mean, even because I, um, I do hypnosis and hypnotherapy, uh, people who say, oh, I don't believe in that. And that's an, uh, I mean, that's one where I can be like, well, I can show you that that's real. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not up to the question of belief. It's just, it's a thing. I and mean, you could use it or not use it. Why wouldn't you use it um, is what I end up, you know, coming down to. But, but there's a, right. there's a battle from the skeptic side where they, I don't understand what their goal is. Usually my, my take is, okay, you were, you are lashing out on some sort of feeling of being subjugated or mistreated by religion. And mm-hmm. that's what's lit, led you to this flip flop to the, you're doing exactly what religions do or on not all religions. I mean, religions don't necessarily do the same thing, but some of them have used their influence badly to, mm-hmm. you know, convert people. And you're doing the same thing. Um, what, what happened to skepticism being open-minded? Um, which, you know, uh, would be the answer to me is like, okay, well here, why don't you look at this and read this? And here's some examples of this happening. And let's start with a pendulum. Look, you just thought of a circle and it went in a circle. Now let's go, you know, let's go to, let's try some stuff. Mm-hmm. that show you that it's, you know, real. It's actually there. Um, right. Well, you, you hit part of the nail on the head, which is uh, that people who are brought up in a, a very religious background, uh, whereas children, they don't know any better, so they completely believe it. And at some point, they feel betrayed. Sure. Because they, they start going to school and they learn that a lot of the things that they thought were true are demonstrably not true. And they get angry about that. And they become determined that they're not going to be fooled again. And so it's very easy to look for cases of people who are are fraudulent, and I mean, like, obviously fraudulent, and and portraying themselves as being genuinely psychic. And they, they would just laugh at them 
and assume that anyone who presents any evidence of that type is equally fraudulent. That's simply a strategy. It's Some of it is unconscious, but even if it's conscious, they, they will assume that anyone who presents any positive evidence is either fraudulent or, or just full of flaws, mm-hmm. like they're not able to critically think. Right. And so you look at the uh, university uh, courses that are given sometimes by skeptics on critical thinking. And I've read the literature that they give, and it's it's horrendous. Right. The idea of learning how to critically think, of course, is very important. But the way that it's presented is ends up being that it's okay to ridicule things that you don't understand very well. Yeah. And that's that's just going completely in the wrong direction. And I think it's one of the reasons why within the skeptics groups that you find people who are, in my experience, are not very pleasant to be around. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, that My introduction to, I, I mean, for the first, you know, 20 years of my life, I didn't know that it even existed. My introduction to it was basically a guy telling me, uh, that I should go read Dawkins before I said anything else and barking down mm-hmm. my throat. And and my response was, Hey, you don't need to sell me your Bible. And that did not go well. Um, no, so, no. <laughs> <laughs> not happy people. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that I'm always glad to find that, that, uh, things like, like your book, you know, and, and that this, that there's people who are looking at this through, you know, objective lenses, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, from what from what you've learned and and what you know, what do you think? What is the usefulness of psi for us right now? What are we doing with it, or what what could we do with it? Well, the, for for its pragmatic use, probably healing is the most common method. Mm-hmm. So there are all kinds of people who have names like energy healers and biofield healers and on and on and on. Sure. Uh, some of them are really talented. Mm-hmm. What they do in some cases might be related to bioelectromagnetics, sure. like conventional forces. But most of the healers that I've spoken to who are quite good at what they do, they can do it at a distance. Mm-hmm. In which case, now it's psi. Right. For want of a better term, if they're doing something at a distance, it's transcending space. Occasionally, you'll get them to admit that it also works through time. Well, now it's definitely psi. Right. So that's probably the most common way that psi is used. Another way that it's used and may not be thought of in these terms are among people who are extremely successful in their business where there's insufficient information to make decisions. So I'm talking about people like uh, futures traders right? and uh, people in politics or in the military who are making decisions that where people's lives are at stake and they're systematically good at it. Yeah. Like the people who tend to end up in the, the top brass within the military, who especially those who have been in combat, they have to be lucky again and again and again and again in, in order to, to end up being promoted through merit. Mm-hmm. And so I've given talks to the top brass in the Army and the Navy. And before I started doing those kinds of talks, I figured that these these folks are going to be really skeptical about what I'm talking about. But it was exactly the opposite. Yeah. Because I don't start talking with, a, with an unknown audience about psychic stuff. I'll start talking about intuition 
and how sure. sometimes a correct decision can save your life and so on. And I'll sort of gradually move into the evidence and then I admit, yeah, this is really about psychic stuff. Typically what happens afterwards is half the audience comes up and starts telling me war stories where something psychic saved their life or the life of their, of their troops or they had some kind of strange telepathic experience. One example is I was talking about telepathy research and how we're reasonably sure that it's not an electromagnetic phenomenon. It's not carried by electromagnetics. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways we know that is by studies where there's been not only very strong electromagnetic shielding, but uh, where the one party in the telepathic connection is in the submarine and at some depth in the submarine where electromagnetics won't go. Right. That's the whole point of having submarines. You can make them invisible, essentially. Mm-hmm. So I was talking about that. And then later, two submarine commanders came up and they said they, they had compared notes and they had both the same experience. Each of them in completely different episodes were under maneuvers. Uh, that means that they may be submerged for months mm-hmm. at depths that are classified but depths that are so far down that that they're essentially invisible. There's nothing that can detect it. And while under those conditions, in the middle of their nighttime, because, you know, it's like going to the moon. They have their own day and night when they're submerged for so long. In the middle of their nighttime, a sailor wakes up, wakes up the captain and says, we have to surface immediately. There's something wrong at home. Uh Uh-huh. Well, well, they can't surface because they're under maneuvers. But when they do are able to surface later, the uh, they check with the sailor's family, and sure enough, at the time that that sailor woke up from sleeping, there was indeed something very serious happening at home. So he asked the commanders in both cases, "How often does that happen?" In other words, are there false positives? Like every Tuesday, somebody wakes up and starts <laughs> freaking out. And their answer was, "It only happened on." These occasions, there are no false positives at all, because people who are selected to be able to go into a submarine and stay down below the ocean for six months, they're psychologically very, very stable, and they're not claustrophobic, and they don't tend to nightmares and all that stuff. So there aren't, there aren't any false positives. That happened once and under each commander's watch, and in both cases, it was correct. That means it is not an electromagnetic phenomenon. Hmm. And that immediately raises the question of, well, what is it then? Well, then we start getting stuck and have to make noises like quantum blah, blah, in right. order to begin to, to address it in a physical sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I was talking to a, a, a man last night. Um, I was performing uh, a, a mentalism show. And after the show, we, we were talking sort of about real experiences of things. And uh, it was funny to me that he was telling me stories of his own experiences through his wife, where he was saying, oh, well, this happened. You know, my wife um, woke up and said, oh, I need to check on so-and-so. And it was a relative. And it's happened twice. And that person had just passed away. Um, and, and it was amazing to me. And then he followed it up. But, but I don't believe in these things. I'm like, well, Wait a what? She, the person died twice. Well, different, different, different family members. Okay. Yeah, uh, that, that had, would have been had passed away. Well, yeah, <laughs> that was that would be a whole nother story. Um, yeah. But yeah, so and that that happens time and time again that I get stories from people that are mm-hmm. tr- their own personal psi experiences that yep. they then discount by saying, "But I don't believe in it." And 
I think they're doing that out of fear of being thought of as somebody who believes in these things. Yes. Because, you know, the taboo of, oh, you believe in that? Um, You must come under so much of that negative stuff. Um, and I, and I know as a scientist that that's gotta be difficult, uh, and, and test your faith in what you do because, uh, the whole community, it seems is geared against it. Um, well, it's, it's only negative if you pay, if you pay attention to it. There you go. Good. Right. So I, I strongly value constructive criticism because all I can do is make my work better. Sure. What I don't value is stupid criticism or, or, or skepticism for the sake of skepticism. Right. Uh, that has no value to me. It doesn't help anyone do anything. So when I, I can detect that somebody is along those wavelengths, I just don't pay any attention to it at all. Fabulous. Good. That makes it easy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in the end of your book, towards the end of the book, you start talking about... Um, AI and that in the future we're going towards having conscious robots. Um, when I heard that after, after going through, you know, after the book about what uh, contemplating and questioning what is consciousness and the framework of consciousness being everything and that, all consciousnesses are part of consciousness with capital C. Um, mm-hmm. If a robot was to become conscious, that means that the robot would join consciousness, not that it independently would become conscious. It, it would be able to express its own awareness. Right. Yes. So that localized portion of space time would become aware that it is part of this universal consciousness. And, and just at this moment, my iPhone is conscious. At least it's made up out of consciousness. Sure. That's what the esoteric traditions would say. But it may not help have self-awareness. Okay. It, so self-awareness, that's enough. a good word. Yeah, okay. Because when I, was, when I was hearing that, I was like, well, if everything is made from consciousness, well, the robot's already conscious. It's just not able to tell you about it or, or experience right. it, in it on some level that we would... We would define as yeah, self-aware. Yeah, it's not self-aware. It's a self-awareness, which is is where the a system has to be complex enough so that there's recursion that is allowed within the structure itself. And so that that's why I think we we can talk about our own awareness, our own experience, because we have self-awareness. Whereas something like a, a thermostat on the wall has recursion built into it. It has a feedback system where it's connected to the environment. But it, in, it, in that sense, it has a very uh, primitive form of self-awareness. But it doesn't right. have the, the, the mechanisms to create what we would call cognition or perception, at least in a very, only in a very primitive sense. And even if it was self-aware at a very primitive level, we don't have any way of detecting that. Yeah. And so we look at an example of, uh, for plants, for example, where people are now beginning to do experiments showing that plants have a kind of proto-self-awareness. Sure. They, they communicate with other plants. They can move around. They do things. They learn. They have memory. Mm-hmm. Well, these are now properties that we used to 
think could only exist in higher order animals. Right. And it turns out that's simply not the case. Like everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I read the secret life of plants when I was in, in uh, high school, I think. Um, mm-hmm. and, and blew my mind. It's great. Sorry, when we get into consciousness, my, I have to think before I can talk. <laughs> yeah, this is a psychic levitating robots. <laughs> psychic levitating robots, right. Um, I love the stories of levitation. I, is that, that is something that I have never seen uh, other than a, you know, a magic show. Um, mm-hmm. but, but true levitation. Have you experienced that? Do you, have you have any, I mean, other than the stories, have you seen something levitate? Well, I, I was once at the um, Maharishi International University where I was part of a, uh, a select group of VIPs who were going to see the world's most advanced yogic flyers. Well, they're kind of, you know, the TM. they're kind of hopping. Yeah. yeah. So before we saw we, this amazing demonstration, uh, we had a lecture on quantum gravity to explain how what we're seeing is not a miracle, but something simply related to the physical world. Sure. At this point, we're all getting a little bit nervous because we're thinking we're going to see people floating because we're getting this big workup. And then, of course, what we see is hopping. Right. So I asked the, the head of the TM organization, has anyone ever hovered for more than a millisecond? Yeah. And the answer is no. Yeah. Has anyone studied the nature of the hopping? Because given that we were seeing these people close up in full lotus position and hopping around, it looked peculiar. Yeah. And and so I wondered, maybe this is not simply a ballistic effect as a result of strong muscles. Maybe there is something strange about the, the way that they're hopping. And apparently that hasn't been studied. Hmm. which was kind of disappointing. So someday when I have an infinite amount of time and money, <laughs> I would like to study the, hop, uh, the hopping gurus. Who are, yeah. The hopping. And also people uh, who I think are sincere who say that occasionally in their meditation, they do hover. Yeah. And they say that other people have seen them hover. Well, I, I've heard I stories, like but I've not seen yeah. it either. And I'd love to. Yeah. Um, but an, an interesting thing, uh, the one time when I asked, oh, wow, that, uh, you know, did that make, was talking to somebody who did, uh, it wasn't TM, but it was another uh, mantra based meditation system. And, uh, and he was talking about seeing somebody hover. And I said to him, did that make you want to be able to learn how to get to that level? And he said, well, yes and no. I gave, I, I, I considered it and then I decided against it because why should I waste the energy to do something that's not really useful when, you know, I can use it for healing and other things. And I was like, well, I can mm-hmm. see, I can see his point there, but it kind of made me go, yeah, but don't you want to see, don't you want to be able to do that? <laughs> anyway, uh, so that's my ego getting in, in the way. Um, yeah. do, do you personally, anyway, if, if someone was able to get to that level of, uh, of, of Samadhi, say, sure. where they're able to, or, or gnosis to be able to produce that, they could probably also produce many other kinds of things. Yeah. So as a target that it's like trying to win the Olympics the first time you go out and try to do something. Yeah. That's just nonsense. So, you start small, and most people eventually can learn how to do at least a little bit of clairvoyance if they, if they try hard enough sure. and if they have some talent. 
but and you see this in the yoga sutras like in my previous book on called supernormal mm-hmm. it was all about the eastern esoteric traditions mainly through yoga and there it's very clear that the first city the first power that is that comes about as a result of meditation practice is seeing past present and future all at the same time yep. well that's that's clairvoyant yep do you practice meditation yourself I have practiced meditation on and off for 40 years. Uh-huh. And and so sometimes I go through periods where I'm very dil- diligent about it. And then I, I get to a point where I'm so blissful that I figure, okay, I've, I've, I got there. Don't need to do this anymore. And so I stop. <laughs> yeah. And then months and months will go by and I say, you know what? I, I guess I wasn't there after all. Right. So I, I, go back and forth for are, many, many years. Are you practicing TM or other versions? I've tried many methods over the years and I've kind of narrowed down to Vipassana. Okay. Uh, mantra meditation yeah. is too busy for me. Mm-hmm. And concentration meditation, my work involves med- concentration. I don't want to do that. So Vipassana is essentially like trying to get the empty mind. Yeah. That's what feels best to me. I, I do TM. Um, and I've tried other things as well, but I've not, what you're talking about, I've not tried. Um, but when I'm, when I meditate, when I stop, I get images that often end up being things that happen. I don't know that what they are when they happen and I write them down and then I, and then in the next couple of days, usually something will be like, Oh, that's what that was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that experience in itself opened me up to new possibilities because it, it was mm-hmm. like, oh, it was just doing this every day that started me doing that. Okay, that's great. Yep. Um, yep. I I have come to the sort of conclusion or made the observation that most of the strongest experiences and expressions of things that we call psi happen from an unconscious state or from the unconscious in some way. It's not a, It's not like you shoot a laser out of your brain. It's, it's like it happens without you controlling it like that. Um, right. is it, does that reflect it in the evidence? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Ordinary state is not the state you want to be in to do any kind of psychic thing. And so talented people are able to drop into these more refined states a lot easier than people who are not very talented. Does it make sense? I mean, would, would it make sense for people to to sort of practice going under hypnosis or more meditation to enhance their own psyability? Oh, I think so. Yeah, sure. I mean, all all of the evidence from the magical tradition say that you need to achieve gnosis, and sure. if you're a yogi, you want to achieve samadhi. Well, these are very deep mystical states. That, that are, it takes a while, even for talented people, it takes a while to learn how to get there and stay there. And if you imagine that uh, the the bottom of the world is somehow made up of this substance we'll call consciousness with a big C, and we're made up of that, that we have the capacity, we, the principle then would have the capacity to kind of relax into it mm-hmm. as though... The metaphor is that uh, most of the time we live as though we are the crest of the wave on the ocean, but not realizing that we are part of the ocean. Well, you have to relax 
that crest of the wave and relax back into the ocean itself. And that's where things emerge from. So if you can take yourself, and this is where ego gets in the way because your ego doesn't want to relax and disappear. But if you can relax it just enough to be able to dip down into that ocean of possibilities, I think that's where these effects begin to happen. Uh, and the same, this is exactly why sigils work and writing magic and rituals. It's all related to the idea of you go through the process consciously to at least clarify what you want, but then you have to push it down. And so through meditation, you can do that. You can learn how to go down metaphorically. Mm-hmm. And otherwise the rituals themselves will push you out of an ordinary state into the place where you begin to dip a toe into this much larger body of consciousness. Nice. Uh, you mentioned sigils. Um, in the book, you give a really nice description of what a sigil is and how to make one. Uh, I know you have to go in about five minutes, but could we describe that for people, what a sigil is and, and how to make a simple one? Sure. A sigil is a symbol. It's a symbol for something that you want. So it, it's a, a form of writing magic. Writing magic is you make a sentence or you write down exactly what you want in words. So a sigil, typically you take the first letter of each word. And one form of this, you, you if it's a vowel, you don't use the vowels. So you take consonants, it's the first letter. And then you arrange those letters into a shape. Sometimes the letters are turned upside down or sideways or inside out, whatever. But you make a shape that is the symbol for the thing that you wanted, that you would write down. And then once you have the symbol, you essentially mentally focus on that symbol and you energize it, you charge it. So people can charge it with high emotion or with extreme calm. Uh, some people will use the moment of orgasm to kind of shove the the symbol into the deep unconscious. Lots of methods are used. Mm-hmm. Typically, you don't want to share your symbol with anybody else because their intentions can get in the way. Uh, some people will write the symbol down on a special piece of paper and burn the paper as mm-hmm. part of a ritual. So there are many methods that can be used, but the act of creating this the sigil in the first place is already a very intentionally focused act, which encapsulizes the nature of the want of of the the will into a symbolic form that uh, you can carry with you. You may want to look at it every so often um, or put it someplace where you'll see it out of the corner of your eye to remind yourself that it's there. And so I've I've used sigils and writing magic quite a bit before I knew that that was a thing. Mm-hmm. And then as in the process of reading a lot in the esoteric literature, especially on practice, you see that it just pops up again and again. And this form of magic has been around as far as we can tell throughout human history. Sure. Yeah. Mo- most old rune systems are done in sigils. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, I, I think that's a great place for us to end. Uh, I know you have to go in a minute. This has been wonderful being uh, being able to have a chat. I'm so glad that I, I wrote you an email. I, I, it was funny because I think when I did somewhere I read, oh, I might not be able to read or respond or blah, blah, blah. So I wrote the, the email as a, uh, a magical calling 
<laughs> entitled it mm-hmm. manifesting a, a podcast interview. And then in minutes you, <laughs> you responded back, which I did not expect so quick. Um, so thank you yeah, for the, seeing The that. auto response that you're referring to is on my Facebook, uh-huh. one of my Facebook pages. Sure. Because there I just, I don't look at Facebook very often. Uh, but anyone writing to my website, I, I will see that every day. I don't always respond to everyone because some of the people writing actually should be talking to a therapist. Yeah, um, sure. Um, so the most recent book is is Real Magic. Um, you you also mentioned, do you want to just mention other books that people can look at? For Real Magic is called Supernormal, mm-hmm. which is about Eastern esoteric traditions and especially the psychic phenomena associated with them. It's mostly talking about yoga and, and meditation. The one before that is called Entangled Minds, and that's about the physics, as best as we can tell, the physics of psychic phenomena. And the one before that is called The Conscious Universe, which is a, a grand survey of how science has been used to study psychic phenomena. Uh, not simply something like here's an ESP test, right. but in much more detail about the various ways that science has been brought to bear to address the question of is this stuff real or is it uh, an illusion? Cool. Thank you. Is there anything else you want to add before we stop? No, I think, I think we're good. My thanks again to Dean Radin for joining me for that conversation. Thanks to you all for listening to this podcast. Please tell your friends, tell your friends' friends, tell your enemies, tell everyone to listen to Mysterious World. They'll only get something out of it that'll be positive for them. I promise. Have a wonderful winter solstice, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever it is that you celebrate, make it a lovely time. Live in gratitude. And I thank you again. Blessed be.
There's no gold wire and then wire not in a frequency thing. The tangible vibration. <coughs> and then the flood. And the pain. The wind is howling like a, a storm inside. Couldn't keep it and heaven knows I try. So let them in, don't let them see. Be to go. Always has to be, and you don't fear. Let them know, for now they know. Let it go, let it go. Can't hold back anymore. Go, let it go. Turn the wind out the door. I don't care where they're going. They let the storm wage on. Oh, never bother me anyway. It's funny how some distance everything seems all in the field. Once controlled me, can get here at all. Time to see what. Ooh, test the limits and boy to the water will find me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. Can't hold back anymore. Let it go. Go. Storm away, John. The power of glory is to the air and to the ground. Spider, let it fall, all the wall. The wind, the crystal wipe is sterility blast. Never going back to past, see the past. Let it go, let it go. Otherwise, the boys hold on, let it go. Go hold the perfect world is gone. Here I stand, night of death. It's always John. Cold never bothered me anyway. <laughs>